Today's Old Testament reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, and can be found on page 185 of the Church Bibles. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, and can be found on page 1154 of the Church Bibles. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So once again, welcome to each one who's here and for those who are joining us via Zoom. Thank you for making the effort to be a part of the church fellowship this morning. And uh, as we begin today, uh, let me just pray. Father, thank you for this time together. As we have been listening to your word, as we've been listening to what has been sung to us, and again and again it speaks about love. And ultimately as we learned last week that the Bible tells us God is love. And yet that power of his love working in us shapes and forms and does so much. So Lord, we ask you right now that that power of your love come and your spirit speak to our hearts, to our minds, and to the depth of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, I um, am enjoying, actually, this snow. That is actually almost bad, particularly for a preacher. But you know, it relieves those of us who have allergies. It just kind of captures the pollen on the way down. It's a marvelous provision of God, so I'm very, very thankful. Um, but today as well, I would just also encourage you that, you know, in the next weeks we have a number of things as we approach Easter that are going to be happening at IPC. So I'd encourage you to check the bulletin and see those things that you want to participate in and encourage you not to miss them. And then I was just reminded this morning, again, as I realized um, that in North America, this day they have moved into spring forward in their timing and for a moment I thought oh I'm almost late for church I've got to go and then I realized we do that in two weeks 
But two weeks from now is when we have our joint service. So make certain you set your clocks ahead, which probably all of you have them automatically set ahead, and uh, that we don't come uh, late. But anyway, we look forward to that. Now, today I want us to continue in this short sermon series from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as I mentioned last week, chapter 13 really seems to be the adhesive or the glue that holds together chapters 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians. And of course, chapter 12 deals with the God giving gifts to his people within his church. And there, of course, in verses 4, 5, and 6, it says that the same Spirit has given different gifts, that the same Lord has been giving different service, that the same God, then it works out differently in each one of us. And the idea in the first half of that chapter is just that we receive these gifts, these abilities from God, which gives us also this special role within his church that we function, that we are part of the body. But then the second half of chapter 12 was given all to the concept and the illustration or the example of a body. And he says, this spiritual truth is just like a human body, which we have different functions and different parts. We have the eyes that see, the ears that hear, feet that walk, hands that grasp. And he talked about or wrote about the idea that each part is necessary to have a complete whole. And then evidently in that church in Corinth, they must have been either arguing or debating or not appreciating one another or criticizing one another because then he said how in the world would it ever happen that your eye would say I don't need the ear or vice versa and then of course it ends chapter 12 with this verse it says very simply now eagerly desire the greater gifts and yet I will show you the more excellent way. And then chapter 14, so desire the good gifts, and I will show you an excellent way. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, the way of love desire the gifts. In other words, he has attached chapter 12 as it ends to chapter 14 as it begins and what is in the middle holding them together is love. This God love. And we read last week about the definition, of course, in the New Testament of love is God is love. And that God is in us, transforming us, that we can actually experience this love. So, then the question is, well, why is this a challenge? Now, Probably none of you have ever found a difficulty in loving someone. Uh, that is probably something I have found not to be so simple. But here is the objective. You see, we said God is love, 
And that God of love then is living within us. He is changing us. Remember how we read from last week from Ephesians where he said, and before what was self, you put that off and put on that new creation in God who God is working in us and what he is doing. Then listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. And in him you now are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The objective of all of this love is that God who is love is building in us. Initially, I had to read this several times and I realized, yes, in us individually, but then in us as a church, as a body of Christ, he is building a dwelling place or a place where God by his spirit will live. It's an incredible truth. And that is why this idea of love is so important. Now, we like love. It's very good. So what's the difficulty? If God of love, living in us by the Holy Spirit, this should be a very easy Christian practice and discipline. Peter writes in his book, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Listen to what he says. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and then offering spiritual worship to God. The same concept. You are being built into a spiritual house. But here, he not only gives us the objective that God is going to live there by his spirit, but then he says, you like living stones. Of course, the verse before talks about Jesus, the living stone by, appointed by God. And we're supposed to be like that living stone. Now, for an example, could you imagine trying to build a house out of bricks or stones that were living? I mean, I've done a little bit of house repair but I couldn't imagine you get this stone and he says, and you put him right, look, you, you fit right here in the middle. And he looks to the left and says, oh, no, 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 no. I don't like that place. Or look at that person right there. Look at that other stone. You see, the, the, the challenge is we're living stones that God is building into a dwelling place where God, through his spirit, lives. And that's what makes us call upon God himself, doesn't it? That he would do this in the way that only God can do. Now, therefore, what is the answer? Well, Paul is writing here, and he, see, chapter 13. In chapter 12, he ends with, you have this gift, you have these abilities, this should function like a body. And then he, 14, he takes it up again and talks about roles and things that we do, and in the middle is love. This love that God works in our lives. So, then the question comes is, what is love? Now, you notice the next four verses that we had read to us just in a moment ago. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. In those, Paul begins to give us a description or a definition. He describes what love is or what love does, and then he also describes what love is not, or what love does not. 
So both is and does not. So I thought, well, boy, there are a lot of them. And so I counted them up, and I think the descriptive terms are 15. Seven, what it is and doesn't and does. Eight, what it does not and is not. Which means I was perplexed because I thought, well, don't we need as Christians to be told what love is? Do we really need to be told what love is not? Or what it doesn't do? And then I realized, well, maybe that church in Corinth had actually reinterpreted or redefined what love is, and they were practicing what love is not, calling it love. And then I realized, actually, probably in my life, I needed to learn as much what love is not as what love is. And so he goes through and gives us these definitions or descriptions. The way I worked with it is I simply went into the... uh, original text and and through this bilinear Bible then just looked at each word and looked then at the definitions. They're very interesting actually. First he begins with two things that love is and first it says very simply love is patient and the meaning is it is a long long fuse to our anger. It's not being short, it's being long. An amazing idea. And in each one of these, or not in each one, but in most of the words, as you look up the meaning, it also then says, if you are looking at the spiritual meaning, and in this one it says, it's, it's showing the godly directed patience, long-suffering, and it only expresses anger as the Lord directs. So he's packed that into love, is patient. And get what he says? It is only as God directs that we then change. He says not only is it patient love, but he says love is kind. And as we read on that one, it means like it could be gentle. It's full of service to other. And then they wrote in there as well, in a spiritual plane, it describes what God defines as kind and therefore has an eternal usefulness or part. And what really surprised me, then they added a note. They said, in English, we have no descriptive word that describes being kind and good at the same time. And he says, that is what this word means. You have an eternal goodness intent. And we're gentle and we are full of service. Now, then he goes on in the rest of verse 4, and he gives words which love is not, excuse me, or love does not. It does not envy not being jealous. And each one of these does not, it almost comes into a tension between self and the new person in Christ. And love does not, it does not envy, it does not build or on one's own self. It does not boast. That means I don't push myself up, don't vaunt myself. It's not proud. I like this when you look at the definition. It says it's not puffed up. The original means like a bellows that, you know, you, you push, push, and the air comes out and the fire goes hot. And they also said it reminds you of a balloon. 
You see, when we're proud, that's not love. Because we begin to swell. Self begins to magnify itself. And then in verse 5, it goes on and it says, Self does not dishonor others. So these now are not just what it is, but what it does not do. Does not dishonor others. We don't put others down to bring ourselves up. As I was reading this, I had to chuckle. It says, it does not act or look in an unbecoming way. And then it said, which I found very deep to me, it says, in the old times, in the original times, sometimes they use this term to describe someone with a bald head. Now, my bald head is genetic. I remember one time my mother showing me a picture of my father who had passed when I was quite young, because he was older. And there was this really handsome person with this absolute head of hair. And I only knew my father when he was bald. You know, he was bald, I am bald, my son is rapidly balding, and our grandson has all of the marks that he will as well. It's there, but I remember looking at that picture my mother showed, and I said, I don't know who it is. <laughs> don't you recognize your dad? And she took the picture back. I never forgot that because a few years later, or several years later, we were showing our adult children pictures of when I and Lois were newly married. Can you imagine me with curly, brown, wavy hair? And I showed that. Of course, my wife had lovely hair and all that as well. She still does. And I remember our children looking at that and said, who's that? The concept here is we do not dishonor others or we don't act in a manner that is not according to the love of God. And then it goes on. It says to not self-seeking, not making self number one. is not easily angered. And that meaning is it's related to something having a sharp edge, so you touch it and it takes off, or it cuts. I suppose in 2023, we would say that is having buttons that people can push. And our response is that of anger against them. And look what it's saying. It says that is not love. And then the last one that he says it's not really searches my soul. It says, love does not, keeps no record of wrongs. You see, if one keeps a record of wrongs, it is impossible to reconcile and forgive. And I don't know about you, but I find that particularly when my mind is in neutral, like a man's mind, remember that picture? A man's mind is like a series of boxes, and I get into my nothing box, and all of a sudden maybe I think about something that bothered me. And this very verse really spoke to me. Am I at that point keeping a record of wrongs? You remember the discussion that Jesus and Peter had? How many times should I forgive someone? Is seven times enough, Lord, in Matthew chapter 18? 
And he responds, why not 70 times 7? In other words, an unmeasurable number. And then, of course, you remember the parable that Jesus tells after that about the person who had a great debt, and he came in to the person to whom he owned the de- owed the debt, and he was being going to be sent to prison until he could pay it all, and he pleaded with the person for forgiveness and to allow him to keep working until he could pay it off, and it says the person had compassion on him, and he not only allowed him to pay it off, he said he forgave the whole debt. And of course, then Jesus tells, and then that man went out, the forgiven one, and found someone who owed him just a small bit. And he grabbed him and said, you must pay me, and put the person in prison. And so it says, and then when the master who had forgiven him heard of what he had done, you see, you're forgiven a lot, and he didn't forgive any. When I read that portion in Matthew chapter 18, we get to verse 35. It shook me deeply. Because at the conclusion of the parable, Jesus turns to his disciples and said, And so it will be with you if you do not forgive others as God has forgiven you. And then forgiveness, of course, without remembering I think the most powerful passage in the, New, in the New Testament as well as the Old is when Jesus and others quote the New Covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31 where it goes on about I will be your God and you will be my people and I will put my law in your mind, I will write it on your heart. And then you get down to about verse 33, it says, and I will forgive their sins and I will remember their iniquity no more. This is one of the incredible part about forgiveness that we must grab hold of. Remember that idea? It says you don't keep a list of the wrongs that have been done to you. We forgive them and we commit ourselves not to remember. That rememberer, of course, is only used, if I understand correctly, one other time in the Bible. It's in the book of Esther, where her cousin comes in and finds people who are plotting against the king. He reports it. They are taken care of. And then one night when the king cannot sleep, he calls in the rememberer, same word, and the rememberer reads out on, from a list that he has written of everything that has happened in the kingdom. And he, excuse me, he gets to the point where he identifies what her cousin has done. <coughs> excuse me. And God is using that very same word. When I forgive, I commit myself not to remember. And here, it says he keeps no record of wrongs. Could I just stop on this? Because I found this verse searched my heart. Could I ask you very simply today? Are you keeping a record of wrongs? Because the way the Bible is going to define it says that's not love. What God wants us to do is reconcile, forgive. Not be naive, of course but to be following him in this. Then 
It goes on in verses 6 and 7. And I found personally verse 6 to kind of be a summary of everything he's written up to this point. But it's even, <coughs> excuse me, even more than a summary. It seems to be almost a truth statement about love. Listen to what it says. I think if we can get what is in, chapter, in verse 6, it begins to instruct us and help us understand what love is and what love is not. Because look what it says in verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but love rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil. And if you look up the word delight, it means that is, is in favor of, or it is happy with, or it is pleased with evil. And evil, if you look it up, means unrighteousness, or anything that is not to the standard of God. And so that isn't love. And I was beginning to think that is one of the reasons that Paul told them, these are what love is, and this is what love is not. And then he goes on and says, but love does rejoice with the truth. Now, that rejoice word, rejoice with, is a very good English translation. If you go back in the original, it's one word. And as you study it, they say it is one word that has been formed out of two words. Just that unique thing. <coughs> and one means to be together, to come together with, to identify with. It cannot be separated. It is together. And the other word is rejoice. And they, in Greek, have taken those two words and they have merged them to form this word. What does that mean? That means that love is always identified with truth. God is love. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Sometimes in our world, I think in the world of Corinth, and maybe in our world, and we as Christians sometimes think, you know, truth is pretty hard. But love. And maybe in this situation I choose the way of love. All I would like to say is this. The Bible is telling us right here that you cannot separate the two. That doesn't mean that we get out a hammer and chisel and, and, and attack or criticize or critique someone or we, we are judgmental. No, no, no. But what it does mean is that you cannot take love away from truth. It is with truth. It identifies with truth. And I think in 2023, one of the biggest challenges for us as Christians is how to love and yet not affirm what is against God. But this verse seems to give us a bit of an insight. And then the idea of God in us is the power to enable us to love and yet stand firm with truth. And then it goes on in verse 7 as he closes these verses for us today. And he gives us not only this kind of general statement and truth about love, that love does not stand here, but love is always identified with truth. And if we understand that, then it goes back and he says in verse 7, there are four always that truth, oh, excuse me, love always has this. It protects. And as I looked at the meaning of them, it's these four, almost every one 
has in it the definition, the concept that this happens through God. He protects, means you just cover closely, you keep the rain out, and it only says it's only possible because of God's protection. Love always protects, always aware of God's protection. Love trusts, it is believes, I mean, God, it believes, it trusts, it has been persuaded by God, is what the definition says. So God protects, God has persuaded us, then it says it hopes, always hopes. Listen to the definition. Actively waiting for God's fulfillment about the faith he has in birth through the power of his love. Brings hope, right? That's actively waiting for God to fulfill what he has promised. Working through the power of his love. And it always perseveres stays behind. And actually, the definition also had a little note for believers, this is only possible by the power of God. Love always through the power of God. Love always trusts because he's been persuaded by God. Love always hope because we're faith in what God has said and promised. Love always perseveres because this happens through the power of God. So, what do we do with all this? Well, I think recognize that God's working in us, living in us by his Holy Spirit. Two, here are three facts I take out of this. We need to learn what love is and what love is not. What love does and what love does not. And then I think as we identify that, this great truth of verse 6, that love is always never here, but love is always rejoicing with truth. And then finally, the great truths of love are not just those things, but these always, they are never in question, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The Old Testament reading we read says, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. We can only do that as God is in us and his love and the power of his love is working its way out in and through us. It's not a simple task, but this is what God wants. Remember what we said, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I've given to you, that you love one another. And at the end, he says, and by this, all men will know you are my disciples. Love. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for today and for your love to us. And Lord, it's not just simply that you are love, and it is a truth that the great demonstration of love is that you have sent your son Jesus to die for us. But even beyond that, Lord, this very truth that you are building us into a dwelling place that you will live by your Holy Spirit. And as God, your presence through your Spirit is in us, may you cause this characteristic of love to be real in our lives. Help us to identify it, 
Help us to also know what it's not, but not only to identify, but help us to live that truth through your power working in us. We thank you, and we worship you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.